Our Father, uh, we come before you and praise you this morning for your holiness, um, for your honor and your character on display revealed in your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, give grace now uh, as we open the scriptures, Lord, to incline our hearts to fear you. Um, to open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would just help us to, to see clearly and to understand. And Lord, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In the late summer of 2011, if you turned on the news... Uh, it might have looked like the entire southwest of the United States was on fire. Extreme droughts and high winds that year contributed to the worst fire season uh, that my home state, Arizona, has ever seen. And this really hit home for me and for my family when in May of that year, um, an unattended campfire caused the largest fire uh, that Arizona has ever seen within just a few miles of my parents' home uh, in the beautiful uh, Milligan Valley, uh, which is also where the, the Bible camp that Tally and I, uh, my wife, served as counselors together and where we began our married life together. So we cared deeply about this beautiful place. And in 2011, it was threatened by the Wallow Fire. Um, that fire burned hundreds of thousands of acres. And uh, you could actually see it smoke um, here in Kansas and all the way up into Wisconsin um, for days and days. So my mom and my dad, my brother and his family, and the entire camp staff were evacuated because the fire was headed right for the valley. And for days, they, they waited to hear the news of whether or not uh, their home still stood, whether the camp was still there. And uh, when, they, when they finally heard back from someone who was early on the scene, uh, the news came that the fire raged all the way up to the valley. And when it came literally to the property line of the camp, it split in two, went around and closed on the other side. And uh, to this day, it is an incredibly powerful thing to, to hike up to uh, one of the mountains at the back of that valley and to look out and see on the one side the devastation of this raging fire and then to look into the valley and to see the providence of God and what was preserved. So this morning, in our time as we study the book of Joel, it is my prayer that this could be like that hike up the mountain, that as we walk through the pages of this book, we might come to a place where we can view both what the judgment of God destroys and what the mercy of God preserves in the decimation of sin and his enemies and in the preservation of his chosen Remnant, because in both of these things, we behold the glory of our God. 
So it would be easy for us to underestimate or to overlook the importance of these three chapters tucked away in the lesser worn paths of our Old Testaments. But that would be a serious mistake. Because in terms of theological impact, this short book punches way above its weight. This is a minor prophet with a major theme whose message contains vitally important doctrine, both for Joel's time and for ours. So the author of the book of Joel identifies himself as Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, other than his name and the name of his father, we know surprisingly little about the man himself, except that his name very fittingly means Yahweh is Lord, which makes an excellent title for this book. And we know that Joel displayed a serious zeal for the temple sacrifices. Um, and we see evidence of his own familiarity with um, agricultural life. We notice that he is, in a sense, separate from the priests, um, and that he was likely not a Levite. Um, the context of the prophecy, however, does hint at the fact that he was a Judean from the Jerusalem vicinity. Um, now, since Joel does not identify, identify a date for his ministry by mentioning any king, uh, it can be really difficult to arrive at an exact date for the book. But according to uh, Paul Benware, if you compare his writing to that of the prophet Amos, it becomes really evident that Joel's prophecy had already been given and had been widely received by the time Amos came on the scene. Uh, the prophet Amos quotes several of Joel's sayings, and the, full, the, the, the force of Amos's argument is predicated on the, the people's understanding of Joel's message. So this would indicate that uh, Joel was one of the earlier minor prophets uh, in the pre-exilic period. And, and Amos, we know, um, his ministry took place around 760 BC, which would uh, give us an estimated date for Joel's prophecy in 830 BC during the reign of Joash in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the message of Joel is timeless, it forms and expounds doctrines that could be applied and repeated in any age. As for background, we see in the beginning of this book an extended drought and a massive invasion of locusts has basically stripped the land bare of every green thing and brought the people to severe uh, devastation. Now, this natural disaster provides the, the backdrop for Joel to illustrate the coming cataclysmic judgment of God in the day of the Lord, which brings us to the prophet's central theme. Joel's big idea that he wants us to get, and the key doctrine which he develops more than any other Old Testament writer, is that of the day of the Lord. This truth permeates the book. And as a theological reality, the day of the Lord is critical not only to our eschatology, to our understanding of end times, but for our understanding of the very nature and essence of our God. So what is this day of the Lord? What does it mean? This is a term uh, which appears throughout the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments. And generally, it refers to a time when God demonstrates his character 
by bringing cataclysmic judgment against sin. It is called the day of the Lord as opposed to man's day, which is uh, in the scriptures referred to as this, this time period that we're living in now. Man is having his day. Uh, this is his moment in the sun. But when the day of the Lord comes, all of that ends. This is the final destination of all of human history. And the definitive answer to where is all of this headed? It's headed to the judgment seat of God on the day of the Lord. So it's important to note as we study this book that uh, it holds both a historical and an eschatological component to this doctrine. Um, We see several days of the Lord in Bible history. When God wiped out all of humanity with a flood, save Noah and his family, that was a day of the Lord. When he judged the idolatry of Israel through the, the Assyrian invasion in the northern kingdom, and with the Babylonian captivity and the sack of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, those were days of the Lord, historical days of the Lord. But these historical days ultimately point beyond themselves to a coming eschatological day of Yahweh. And in a sense, the doctrine refers to the tribulation time period and to the second coming of Christ when he returns, not as the suffering servant, but as conquering king. This is a day in which the Lord Jesus will exercise judgment against the unbelieving nations and against his enemies. Now, I'm going to read a number of excerpts from the Old Testament just to give us an idea of the biblical sense of what this day will be like. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it will be brought low. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, The day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. Jeremiah 46.10, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Joel chapter 1 and verse 15, For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2, verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Joel 2, 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Amos 5, 18, woe to you and who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Zephaniah 1, 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. Zephaniah 1.15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 through 3, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. As you can see, 
Wherever the day of the Lord is mentioned throughout the scriptures, there is this great consistency and unity as it is depicted as being an imminent day near at hand. And it is always a day that is to be feared. And yet, as we'll see in the book of Joel and in many other passages in the, uh, that treat the day of the Lord, um, while the primary emphasis is on this intense judgment of God against sin, it also includes this idea of blessing for the chosen remnant. So in, in an eschatological sense, this doctrine, even as it is presented in the book of Joel, goes beyond this tribulation period to include the blessings of the millennial kingdom and the reign of the Messiah. So two other key themes that are present in the book of Joel that I want us to notice uh, is first the personal covenant name of Israel's God, the name Yahweh. Now this is the name which God revealed to Moses when he sent him to Israel and in Exodus 3:15 he says thus you shall say to the children of Israel Yahweh God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent you to me this is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations this covenant personal name of God is is a critical feature in the book of Joel it was the character of this name that God revealed to Moses when he answered his plea to show him his glory, telling him he would make all of his goodness pass before him. And he says, I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. In Exodus 34, verses 7 through 8, it says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So if you're reading from a, an ESV Bible or an NIV or a New Living Translation, everywhere that you see in this book and throughout the Old Testament, the word Lord written in all capital letters, it is an indication of this use of God's personal covenant name. And you're going to see it a lot in the book of Joel. And its deliberate and extensive usage by this prophet is highly significant to his message. Because in using it, he is pointing out that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, will not fail to act in accordance with the character of his name. We're also told that God's objective in this coming judgment, in this day of the Lord, is that Israel would come to know the true meaning of the name Yahweh. Jeremiah 16, verse 21, he says, Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. So another key feature that we see in the book of Joel is that of the temple sacrifices. 
Um, In particular, Joel speaks about the grain offering and the drink offering. These are sacrifices, offerings, regular daily offerings that God instituted as part of his worship that were to accompany every animal sacrifice. And uh, in a sense, they they ratified uh, this daily covenant that God had with his people, representing um, the food of his table. And the meal offering, the drink offering, the grain and the wine and the oil, um, these represented God's acceptance of and his sanctification of the offerer. So in the book of Joel, there is great significance which is attached to whenever these offerings show up, when we see them ended, it is a sign of God's wrath and judgment and a setting aside Not an annulment, but a setting aside of this covenant relationship. And when they are resumed in the latter part of the book, it is a sign of this great restoration that Yahweh brings to his people. Um, Some interpretive challenges uh, that we will run into are uh, first prophetic foreshortening. Um, As with most Bible prophecies, Joel's um, seeing his, his foretelling of this day of the Lord has both a near and a far fulfillment. And some of what Joel relates in this book would be fulfilled by events that were actually historical, contemporary uh, events chronologically close to the time of his writing, uh, such as this Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian captivity. And much of what we, we ref, read refers to these events Um, But the majority of the book looks forward to an end times fulfillment, a far fulfillment. And these historical and uh, eschatological prophecies are sort of compressed uh, and overlapping in the book of Joel. So this can present some some interpretive challenges. Um, As well, there is is the challenge of a symbolic versus a literal challenge interpretation of the book. There is this whole body of work out there by commentators who who look at the book of Joel and view it entirely through this lens of signs and symbols. And uh, that the problem with that becomes that no two commentators can agree because it, it brings this wholly in, uh, subjective interpretation uh, to this prophecy. Uh, Martin Luther himself, as he was studying this and, and seeking to interpret it, basically said, I give up. And he's like, I, it, it's, I, I can't understand it. It's not making sense. And, uh, you know, all of that is cleared up when we read and interpret this with the most direct and clear um, interpretation, uh, hermeneutic, that tells us, God is speaking of a literal day in the future, and these are promises to a national Israel and a national restoration um, that have uh, certainly implications and applications to us in the church age. So there's a lot to be gleaned, but um, we would adhere to a, a literal, direct interpretation of these end times prophecies. Now, we can divide the book into two sections. Um, So as an outline, 
uh, we could say that the first portion of the book in chapters 1, verse 1, through chapter 2 and verse 17, is the day of Yahweh forewarned. And then the remainder of the book in chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, 21, the day of Yahweh fulfilled. So the day of the Lord forewarned, the day of the Lord fulfilled is what we see. And in this first section, the prophet speaks of this coming day as a near historical event with this more horizontal emphasis on what Israel must do in order to escape this judgment. So the latter portion of the book speaks of the day of the Lord in the terms of a ultimate eschatological event with a more uh, vertical emphasis on what God will do. In this first section, we see the prophet calling the people to, one, recognize the reality of God's judgment, which they were already under, and two, to respond in repentance. And in the second section, what we see is God himself uh, declaring his restoration for a repentant people and his reckoning against their enemies. So let's dive into this first section. If you'll look down at Joel in chapter 1, verse 1, we see the day of the Lord forewarned. Verse 1 actually forms this sort of prologue where the author reminds the audience of his divine commission as a prophet to deliver God's word to his people. He says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. This verse tells us there is divine authority behind everything that follows. God has something to say, and they should listen, and we should listen. In chapter 1, the prophet first calls the people to recognize the reality of God's judgment. And he communicates this through several key action words, calls to action. And the first of them in verse 2 is to hear. He says, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. He's essentially grabbing the collective nation by the collar and saying, listen up. This is important. And now that he's got their attention, he asks a leading question in the second half of verse 2. He says, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And the implied answer is clearly no. Never before since God first brought the people into the land has a natural disaster on this magnitude come upon them. Uh, The event that Joel is referring to is so significant. In verse 3, he tells them that they must tell their children of it and their children and their children's children to another generation. So there's this lesson that's, that's right in front of them that other generations, according to Joel, must learn from. So what are they to tell their children about? We see in verse 4, Joel says, here's what you're supposed to tell them. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So he's speaking directly to this, this current event this massive invasion of locusts that the people are experiencing. And his threefold statement, the way that he says this is meant to emphasize the absolute totality of the devastation. There is nothing left 
It's as if Joel is standing there in the middle of one of these decimated fields, stripped bare, and saying to the nation, look, look at this. Take a good look and don't forget this. So why is Joel making such an issue out of this plague? You can almost imagine some of the people there saying, all right, okay, Joel, isn't this situation bad enough without you having to remind us of how bad it is? But his point is that this isn't just a natural disaster. It isn't just a run of bad luck. See, in his prophetic role as a forest teller of God's law, as, as Stephen and as, as Scott was teaching us last week, Joel is bringing the law to bear on this situation. He's shining the light on what's happening. And this is a supernatural event which is tied directly to God's law and the terms that were set forth in the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God told the people directly, if you do not obey and you go after false gods, in verses 38 and 39 of Deuteronomy 28, he says, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Joel is pointing out to this people this direct correlation between their disobedience to God and their sin and the present judgment that they are under in this locust plague. He's saying what, what is happening here is that God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Joel's point is that this is God's judgment on their sin. They are under, presently, the curse of the law, and they don't even recognize it. So Joel is here as if he's dousing cold water on these passed-out, sleeping drunkards. In verse 5, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. He goes on to say, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. As you move through the book, you see the prophet ratcheting up the intensity. He builds and builds this this picture of these gathering clouds of God's judgment. And the imagery that he uses here is still that of the locusts laying waste to the land. But you get the sense that what he is doing now is talking about more than just the locusts. See, these locusts have become an illustration foreshadowing a greater coming judgment with the historical invasion of the Assyrians and the Babylonians to punish Israel for their idolatry. Joel is raising the stakes. So now that he's confronted these people with the reality of God's judgment, in light of this, in the beginning of verse 8 of chapter 1, he calls the people to respond to respond to the judgment of God with repentance. And first, this first ingredient, if you will, of repentance that Joel calls them to is grief 
over sin. So look down in in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. This image of a young widow grieving over the untimely death of her husband, Joel says is is the fitting picture for their situation because it, it describes in a vivid way the ultimate extremity of loss and the unbounded grief that would accompany it. And what he's saying is their brokenness over their sin should look like that because their loss is truly beyond reckoning. And in this, this marriage covenant imagery, he's, he's hinting at um, this covenantal relationship between Yahweh and his bride being broken by their sin. So notice uh, in verse 9, this continued covenantal language that Joel utilizes as he unpacks the, the bleakness of their situation. In verse 9, he says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. This phrase, cut off, it carries a strong uh, covenantal significance that would not have been lost on his audience, signaling that their relationship to Yahweh was in danger of being cut off. Um, And so Joel singles out um, as a group of people particularly having reason for mourning and wailing and distress the spiritual leaders of the nation. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, O ministers of the altar. So notice in verse uh, 14 the reason why he gives for this call to intense mourning and wailing and lamentation. He says, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So here we see that theme of the significance of these temple offerings with the meal and the drink offering uh, coming through in Joel's prophecy. See, these were signs. These daily meal offerings were signs of this covenant relationship that Yahweh had and of his acceptance of them. And these offerings being cut off, being unavailable, unable to continue, is a devastating judgment in Joel's eyes. So he says, they must grieve over sin, and in repentance they must appeal to the mercy of God. In verse 14, Joel says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. So we see him in chapter 1, fulfilling this prophetic role of a fourth teller confronting the nation with the law of God and exposing sin. Now, and then in chapter two, he's fulfilling another prophetic role as the watchman on the wall. Verse 15 of chapter one says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the mighty, from the almighty, it comes. Joel sees grave danger on the horizon. 
He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. There are clouds of certain doom gathering against Israel. And as he looks out at the one leading the army against them, it is Yahweh himself. This is the devastating news. In verse 11, it says, Before his army, sorry, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The answer is no one. No one can survive the day of the Lord. No one can rescue them from it except Yahweh himself. And that is the, ver- the hope that the prophet holds out for the people in verse 12 of chapter 2. Look down at verse 12. Yet even now, declares Yahweh, even now, as the sword is ready to fall, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. We should notice how this offer of pardon of clemency comes directly from Yahweh. This is an offer that only he can make. That if the people would truly repent, there is hope in verse 13 found in the very character of Yahweh. He says, tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning evil. We're going to have to skip ahead because of time. Um, But at this point, we reach a dramatic transition. Joel, in light of this offer of of pardon from Yahweh, he calls the people together, um, consecrates this fast, and shows the the priests how they must pray for God's mercy. Um, And then the the scene shifts, because prior to this, God has spoken through his prophet in the third person. But moving forward, in this next section, the day of Yahweh fulfilled, he speaks directly to the people in the first person. See, before, this was all about what Israel must do. And from this point on, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, the focus is on what God has done and what he will do for his people. So in the beginning of of verse 18, we see the day of Yahweh fulfilled, where God himself declares abundant restoration for his repentant people. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. His land. His people, the heart of God for his covenant people is on full display. It says, the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Now, this is amazing. See, this grain and wine and oil were not merely food provisions for a starving people. But these these are also the resources. 
that were necessary in order to resume the daily temple sacrifice. So just like the prophet had said earlier, he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. That's exactly what God is doing. The grain and the wine and the oil for these daily meal offerings um, that he had ordained to, to represent the people's acceptance with God and his covenant relationship to them, God in this day will graciously provide. What Yahweh requires of his people, he is providing for them. Now on this side of the cross in the church age, I hope that we can't help but read this and see this beautiful picture of what God has done in providing the bread and the drink offering for our acceptance in the body and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. These amazing gospel overtones in this book. Now from here, the abundant blessing of God just keeps piling up. He goes on to say he will remove their enemies from them. And where before joy and gladness had been cut off from the house of God, now he says, be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And he says here, this is beautiful. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Amazing grace of God that the sheer abundance of his blessing on his repentant people is going to obliterate the effects of the curse of his judgment. He is making all things new. He says in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And in verse 27, which could be the theme verse of this entire book, God says, he states his objective for doing all of this. Look down in, in verse 27. Thus, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am Yahweh, your God, and that there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. God is making known the character of his name to his people. So in verse 28 and 29, we see that not only does the day of the Lord bring about physical restoration uh, to the nation of Israel, it inaugurates also an unprecedented spiritual restoration. In verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So this pouring out of God's spirit on the nation, on this chosen remnant, pictures the climax of God's restorative action towards his repentant people. Uh, this is what Moses had, had wished for in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, where he says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
in this day, God says, this will come to pass. And because the apostle Peter quotes this verse in Acts in chapter 2, um, in his sermon at Pentecost, and is applying it to the Spirit's being poured out um, on the believers there, um, the question is raised, is that the, the ultimate fulfillment of this passage? Um, but we ought not to take that as, as its ultimate eschatological fulfillment, but rather a pre-fulfillment, a foreshadowing of the Spirit's coming in the end times on the day of the Lord at the second coming of Christ. So we also see God declaring in his fulfillment of the day of the Lord, this day of reckoning against unbelievers and against the enemies of his people. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Here's imagery that, that is taken up in the book of Revelation and expanded upon. But we see uh, in the, the final book of the New Testament, these Old Testament prophecies being spoken of and fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. Now, this passage is, is meant to be very sobering and it's very serious, but I honestly, <clears throat> I can't help but enjoy the sovereign smack talk that you can see in verse 10 of chapter 3. Here is our Lord saying that he is going to sit in judgment against the enemies of his people. And he says to the nations, bring it on. Beat out your farm implements into weapons. Bring every man, bring everything you've got because you are going to need it. He says, let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Now, the next time someone comes at you with this idea of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a sort of long-haired hippie who just wants everybody to get along, read them this passage. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. So here, at this point, we've come to the mountaintop. We can look out across the valley to see the character of God on display in both his judgment and his mercy. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now we've run out of time, um, which just gives me more incentive to encourage you all to open your books, open your Bibles to the book of Joel soon and be blessed by the, the rich 
theological truth it contains. But real quickly, how should we respond this morning? What should we do with this truth? Well, this doctrine of the day of the Lord simply ought to both warn us and teach us how to warn others. Because it answers this question of where is human history headed? Where is all of this going? It is going to the day of the Lord, to the judgment seat of Christ. And it is a day to be feared. This is a wake-up call. It is a warning, and it is also a word of hope. This is the message that was preached by the Apostle Peter at Pentecost, when in Acts 2 it says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And 3,000 people were saved that day. This is the doctrine that was preached by Paul to the Thessalonians and to the other early churches. This was preached by John the Baptist, and it was preached by Jesus. We should preach it too. It is the good news of the gospel that we may escape the coming day of the Lord's judgment and be reconciled to him through repentance and faith in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ.